Um, we're in Revelation 6 this morning. If you remember, uh, we're still in the vision that began in chapter 4 of this great throne. And the one on the throne has a scroll in his hand. And it has seven seals on the scroll, preventing it from being opened. And we're introduced to the only one who can open the seals and thereby reveal the contents of the scroll, and that is the Lamb. And then in chapter 6, last sermon, two weeks ago, we read about the beginning of the opening of these seven seals, the first four seals. The first four seals were four horsemen sent forth by the Lamb to inflict suffering upon the world. And so this morning, now we come to the fifth seal. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. And then next week, the sixth seal, 12 to 17. So let me read the, the opening of the, about when the Lamb opens the fifth seal. Revelation 6, 9. And by the way, there are copies of the sermon, at least there were on the back table. I think there's still some. If you would like to get one to follow it along, if that would help you, please feel free to get up and go back and get yourself a copy. Or you can raise your hand and I'm sure Kurt would be happy to get you one. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So let's talk about what's going on here in the opening up of this, this fifth seal. Unlike the first four seals, when the Lamb opens the fifth seal, he does not see... Uh, another round of suffering that's being inflicted upon the earth, he sees under the altar, that is, where the, in front of the throne, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So he sees Christians, believers, who have died... Because of their faith, and they are before the, the throne. So instead of seeing from the, it's a change in perspective from the first four. Instead of seeing the suffering on earth as a result of the decrees of the one who's on the throne, like we had in the first seals, for first four seals, the fifth seal depicts the suffering on earth in terms of the reaction of the deceased saints in heaven to the suffering which had been inflicted on them by their persecutors. 
But even though it's seen from a different perspective, the same suffering is being talked about here as was talked about in the first four seals. We know this because in these verses, the same Greek words are used as were used in the first four seals. The word slay in verse 4 and then in verse 9. In both cases, same word. And the word kill in verse 8 and then in verse 11. The same word is used. So who are those under the altar? Who are these souls who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they'd borne? Are they, you know, the small fraction of Christian believers who actually were killed because of their faith? I don't think so. I think that they are, this is referring to all believers who stay faithful against all the opposition they experience. All those who, as we read about over and over again in Revel, the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, all those who conquer not just those who are actually killed for their testimony. And let me explain why I think that. First of all, the same phrase is used in chapter 20 of Revelation in verse 4. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Same exact concept here. He sees these souls and yet... In that passage, they are also described, these souls, as those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And had not received the beast's mark on their foreheads and their hands. And the next verse, verse 5 of chapter 20, contrasts this group who had been slain for their testimony with The rest of the dead, referring to the to non-believers. So, again, it seems like really what's being talked about here is all true believers. But there's more than just that. We have language all through the New Testament, which refers to true believers as those who have been slain for their testimony. The language of sacrifice, the language of martyrdom. And we have, I have listed a number of passages here in the notes. But let me just read one verse. In Romans 8, in verse 36, in the context of Paul talking about the tribulation, distress, persecution, and dangers that believers face, he quotes Psalm 44:22. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So he describes persecution and trouble in the language of being martyred. The fact is, this is the Christian life. For Christ's sake, we are being killed all day long, like sheep to be slaughtered. Following Christ means dying every day, being slain for the word of God. Now, I find this convicting 
Jesus' description of our lives in Christ is of being slain for our testimony of the word of God and the message of Jesus. Many Christians, it seems to me, at least in America, devote a lot, many of us, devote a lot of our energy trying to avoid the dying God has ordained for his people. Instead of engaging in ministry to the world around us, it has become an acceptable part of Christian culture to pursue earthly security and safety and financial stability and affluence. The description of Christians here as those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne is in my opinion pretty far-fetched when you think about the context of contemporary American Christianity. We may honor and esteem those who travel to far-off dangerous lands as messengers of the gospel, as if they have a special calling, doing something we could never do. But we don't seem to accept that every believer is part of this calling to minister the gospel and the love of Christ wherever God leads us. The reason for this, I believe, is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, 23 to 26, when he said, It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe that our access to worldly comforts makes it very hard to really grab hold of God's promises about the glory that will come on the last day to those who suffer. On the other hand, how awesome it is that God has given grace to some people to stand up for the truth even though it brings them hatred and even death. And this is happening all around the world. We know from our own hearts how easy it is to fear the rejection of men. Think about what a miracle it is that there are people like this who don't fear men but who fear God people who willingly give up their safety their financial standing their popularity even their very lives in order to stand up for and to advance the word of God what would drive a person to make this kind of choice They are either the ultimate fools or they have found something so valuable that it's worth giving up everything for. And if they did find such a treasure, what could that treasure be? Well, the very one for whom they gave up everything talked about this in Matthew 13. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Then in his joy he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Indeed, Christ's kingdom is such a valuable treasure that it's worth giving up everything else in order to obtain it. So, these are the souls who are described in verse 9. And then as we move to verse 10, we find that these souls slain for the word of God are crying out to God with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These believers before the throne are crying out to God for vengeance. They're crying out for the judgment day. They're crying out for the day when Christ will return and avenge the blood of his people. How long before you do what you promised? How long will will these four horsemen be able to wreak their havoc upon the world? How long before the tide turns? And you punish our persecutors. Maybe this doesn't sound very Christian in our ears. Maybe it sounds selfish. Maybe mean-spirited. And yet, these people are supposed to be perfected. How can perfected saints talk like this? Well, I would suggest that it's because they're perfected that they can talk like this. Their prayer, you see, is not vindictive. It is actually praying for the vindication of God's reputation. If God doesn't punish those who mistreated his little ones, he will show himself to be a liar. And if God doesn't punish sin he will show himself to be unjust. We see this in Psalm 74, verses 10 and 11. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. So in the same way, it's calling out for God to to do justice, to take vengeance. And yet, it's because they are, his name is being reviled. And his zeal is that the name of the Lord be honored and not reviled. This is why these slain believers preface their prayer by addressing God as holy and true. They are asking God to demonstrate his holiness and his truthfulness by bringing wrongdoers to justice. But maybe some people have an even bigger objection. Maybe some people are offended at the very idea of a sovereign Lord who will avenge the blood of his people. Today, many mock this God who keeps a record of what people do and then punishes them at the end. They love to devise ways to convince themselves that there's no danger of judgment for any of us. 
It's very understandable. Those who love darkness hate light. But their hatred and mocking do nothing to erase the coming reality of God's punishment. In fact, they increase it. No matter how much people protest or laugh at the idea of God bringing down his hammer of justice on those who reject and repudiate him, it doesn't change anything. God is God. He is who he is. The nations rage. The peoples plot in vain. The rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Psalm 2. And this wrath is hottest toward those who abuse God's little children. It would be better for them, Jesus said, if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were cast into the sea. Sadly, because of the world's abhorrence of the doctrine of divine wrath, many in the Christian church downplay it or ignore it or even deny it in spite of the fact that the whole Bible teaches that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict his people. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord when he comes on that day. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10. And there are many other passages I could read as well. Vengeance is not ours. But that doesn't mean vengeance is not the Lord's. We'll talk a lot more about vengeance next week because the sixth seal, as it turns out, represents the judgment day, as we'll see. And then as we move to verse 11, in response to this how long prayer, each of these believers is given a white robe, which is, of course, what is promised in Revelation 3, 4, and 5 to those who conquer and they have conquered so they're given the white robe and they're told to rest a little longer. So even when you get to heaven your waiting isn't necessarily over. How long? You'll have to wait a little longer. Justice must be waited for. The last day must be waited for. The return of Christ still must be waited for. Old Testament saints had to wait for the first coming of Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised that we have to wait for the second coming of Jesus. Now what are we waiting for? You know, um, I don't know about you, but sometimes you're driving along on a highway and, you know... Suddenly the traffic stops and you come to stop. You're waiting there and waiting to the cars to move on. And it's just 
stays still. And one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four, five minutes. And pretty soon, I don't know if you're like me, I turn my engine off. And I wait a few more minutes. And then after that, I finally say, I'm going to go find out what's going on. And I get out of my car. And I walk on ahead because I'm like, what's going on up here? That, that everybody's just stopped, you know? Is it, you know, should we, should we eat lunch? Should we play frisbee? What, you know, what should we do instead of just waiting here? And you walk up and you find out, you know, whether there's an accident or whether, you know, a cow's in the road or whatever it is. If you live in Falkner County, that's not that rare. And, um, and so, you know, you wonder what's holding this up? And so we have the same question when it comes to this. This is taking a long time. What is the holdup here? Well, we're told that in, uh, in the next little part of this verse. It says, it says, God is waiting until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So you see, there's a certain number of individuals God has chosen to create and then to draw to himself. And until this whole process is complete, the end will not come. This is God's no-child-left-behind program. If your name is written in the book of life, The whole universe is going to be held in waiting until you come to Jesus and then the show will end. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, as Mark as Paul says in second as Peter says in second Peter three nine. And once that process is, is complete, you could wait a thousand more years, and not one additional person would come. Now it may seem strange that here we are two thousand years later, and the little longer still hasn't come to an end. And Peter addresses this issue in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 14. But all I could say is that when we're in heaven and we can see time from a big picture, it will seem like a short time that, that, that this took in light of our eternal state. Now, let's talk a little bit about this intermediate state. In the Bible, we're told very little about what's going on right now with Christians who have died. This is one of the few passages where we're told something about what theologians call the intermediate state. That is the state between earthly life, like we're in right now, and the final state of resurrected glory after Christ returns. There is going to be a great day when believers will be resurrected in new bodies and will live in a new heavens and a new earth. But between the time that we die and the time that Christ returns, what's going on? 
Where are our loved ones who have gone before us right now? Where are Al and Peg Mathwin, Bill and Virginia Dodds, Jane Sowers, Bob Aker, Jimmy Wilcox, Francis, uh, Sally's mom's husband, Aaron Gray's mom and Heather Gray's dad, and many others. The, the uh, Gutierrez's daughter, where are they? And where will we be when we die? We know that they don't yet have new bodies and that their earthly bodies are still in the tomb. You see, humans are composed of two parts, bodies and souls or spirits. At death, the two are separated. So those in heaven right now are disembodied souls. When we die, our souls go to heaven, our bodies go back to the earth. As it says in Ecclesiastes 12.7, the dust returns to the ground where it came from. And the spirit returns to the God, to God who gave it. We also know that these believers who have died are with the Lord. We also see this, we see this here in Revelation 6, 9 to 11. We also see it in the story of the thief on the cross. When Jesus says to him, this very day you will be with me in paradise. In Luke chapter 16. We know that these people are still living in the context of time. Or they couldn't ask, how long, Lord? We can tell that they're awake and that they are resting in God's presence and that they're yearning for the end, the judgment day and the day of resurrection. You see, this is one of those situations of good better and best. This life is good. The intermediate state is better. And the final state of resurrection will be best of all. Now, now in this life, we have the precious salvation that Jesus accomplished for us. Plus, we have the Holy Spirit. He, he sent to us Excuse me. <clears throat> we have his peace. We have the promises of his word of a glorious future. We have the company of God's people traveling together, marching to Zion. Some might say, this life is good? Are you kidding? Yes, it is good, though it's also hard. It is much better than life without Christ. And without help. And without hope. But when we die, we will leave behind this veil of tears. We will leave behind the sinful nature that dogs us. We will rise in spirit to dwell in the presence of the Lord with others who have also departed in faith. There we will rest from toil We will rest from frustration, from trouble, until the day of Christ's return. But we will still be waiting 
for the day of resurrection, longing for the day of his justice, the completion of our salvation. This, that will be better than where we are now, to be sure. And Paul makes this clear, 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8. While we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And then in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Notice there is no mention here of the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, which claims that the vast majority of believing people go to a place where they are agonizingly purged of their sins before going to heaven. Even Jesus had an intermediate state, though a brief one. On the cross, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. His body was in the grave. His soul went to be with God. But although these saints are in glory in heaven, they are not in final glory. We see that they're still waiting for the coming day when their resurrected bodies will be joined to their souls. They're still waiting for the day of Christ's return when he will make all things new. Our passage this morning makes it clear that the third and final state is better than the second state. Just as the second state is better than the first. The final state is what is described at the end of Revelation. That will be our eternal state. The first state is where we are today. The final state is where believers will spend eternity. But this passage focuses our attention on the intermediate state. These saints in heaven are very important to us. And God does not want us to forget about them. We say in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the communion of saints. Well, guess what? Part of, the, commu- of our, the communion of saints that we enjoy is communion with the saints who are in heaven, who have gone before us. We may be separated from them for a time now, but we are one with them in purpose, one with them in allegiance, one with them in worship. We are still in this together with them, not only with each other, Not only with the body of Christ around the world, but with the body of Christ that has gone before us. They are our family too. Each believer is carrying a baton which has the fingerprints on it of those who have gone before us. And in some cases, even the blood of those who have gone before us on it. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12 tells us that in some sense, we are with them even now. It says to believers, to you and me, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now there's a, that's a lot going on there. But first let me point out that it says you have come, not you will come. We've already come there somehow. You come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In coming to Christ, there's a sense in which we've already come to the new Jerusalem and are part of it. We've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is the great assembly that we, of angels worshiping God that we saw in Revelation 4 and 5. Turns out, in one sense, we're there too. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now that can't mean believers who have died and gone to heaven because that would make it synonymous <clears throat> with the phrase that comes a couple of phrases for, uh, later, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It seems to mean all those whose names are written in God's book, of, in the Lamb's book of life. Whether they're dead, whether they're living, whether they haven't even been born yet. But then you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Ah, these are the believers who have died. These that are mentioned in Revelation 6, 9 to 11. So in sense, some sense, in coming to Christ, we have come to the saints who have gone before us. We are still a part of them and they're a part of us. We do not encounter them directly. In fact, we're forbidden to even try to do so in Scripture. Not that contact is impossible. We see contact happening. Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. We see uh, the prophet Samuel appearing by the work of the witch of Endor to Saul in 1 Samuel 28. And here we have John seeing them in a vision. But we are separated and we can't have direct contact with them. But this separation is temporary. There is a great reunion coming. And even though we have no direct contact with these fellow believers now, they still speak. We're told this in Hebrews 11.4, when it's referring to Abel, and it says, by faith he still speaks, even though he is dead. He speaks by his example. Hebrews 12.1 tells us we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who are testifying of the faithfulness of God to us. Right now we have no access to these great heroes of faith like Moses and David and Paul. We cannot speak to them, but they still speak to us by their lives that they lived here, by the reward they are enjoying even now as a result. And there are many others, of course. Great heroes of the faith that we can still listen to. We can still read their books, sometimes watch their videos. They're still speaking to us. 
You have heard me glowingly speak of the three great women God gave the church in the second half of the 20th century, Corey Tenboom, Elizabeth Elliot, and Johnny Erickson. Johnny Erickson can still speak for herself because she hasn't passed yet, even though from my, what I've heard, she is the oldest living quadriplegic in the world. But Corrie Ten Boom has passed, but she still speaks. Marguerite told me that in Holland, there's a woman who is an actor who plays the part of Corrie Ten Boom and, and just goes around giving talks and telling her story. So her story, she's still speaking even though she's not there. And when we were at the Bible Museum the other day, they announced that in the, this fall, there's going to be a big Elizabeth Elliot display at the Bible Museum. So she's still speaking. And it's a wonderful blessing that we have the ability to, to hear from people who have gone before us, who speak such words of encouragement to us. The author of Hebrews points to lives like this all through the chapter 11 as like a spiritual CPR for those who are growing weary. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run the race of endurance marked out for us so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. My friends, in many ways this life is an endurance contest. Paul himself tells us it's a race and a fight. And that means we grow weary. We don't know if we're going to be able to put one foot in front of the other sometimes. We waver. We reel. We feel like we're going to fall. We're tempted to give up. And one thing God has given us to enable us to keep going is this great cloud of witnesses who are shouting us on and cheering us on. He is faithful. Keep running. The prize is at the end. And the one who has ears to hear can hear the thunderous roar of the crowd. Go, go, go. Keep going. They felt weary just like we do. They struggled to keep going just like we do. But they hung on and they did not give up. They clung to God as their rock and their fortress and their might as their Lord and as their captain. He was their one true light in the dreary darkness. And now they have won for themselves the victor's crown of gold. And they enjoy blessed rest in the sweet calm of paradise. And when the fight is fierce and the warfare long, let us set our ears to hear their distant triumph song and hearts will be brave again and arms strong. Let us stand together and sing 
for all the saints who from their labors rest. Heavenly Father, we do give praise to you for these brothers and sisters who have faithfully gone before us. We thank you for the blessing that they are to us in paving a path for us to walk on, for carrying faithfully the gospel, and for cheering us on by their example. We thank you that they wait for us. We thank you that one day we will be with them, some of us probably very soon. And we pray that you would give us strength, dear Lord, and help us not to give up. We thank you now for the blessing of your table, where you serve us as we run the race. This refreshing food that strengthens us and reminds us of the great day at the end of the race when we will have a feast with you. We pray that you'd strengthen us and help us through it and help us, O Lord, to have eyes to see your love for us even in the gift of this, your body and blood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.